Which world would you prefer? A world with pyramids or a world without them? Maybe you'll disagree with me and we can fight. Artists are only creative for 10 years. Engineers are no different. Oh no, <laughs> don't, build, don't build the warplane. Maybe she's cured through death. Maybe death makes her whole again. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Hello and welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators, where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Raymond Ocapel. And I'm Sophie Glomperens. And today we are discussing a film... And there's a question asked in this film, which I want to ask you, Sophie, before we start. Which world would you prefer, a world with pyramids or a world without them? What would you prefer, Sophie? I think that the correct answer is a world with pyramids. I would ultimately say probably a world with pyramids. However, at the same time, the existence of the pyramids doesn't really affect my life in any way. I don't think <laughs> on a daily basis about the fact that there are pyramids. I've never gone to see the pyramids. Uh, the only time that pyramids affect my life is if I see a picture of the pyramids and I go, oh, hey, there are pyramids. While I think probably it is existentially better to live in a world with pyramids, they don't really affect my life. So ultimately, it wouldn't really change my life one way or the other. And then there's a little bit of a complication because pyramids were obviously built by slaves, and that's a problem. And so maybe maybe we shouldn't want to live in a world with pyramids if it required slavery, etc. Well, that's really the whole context of the question, basically. What should we do with the fact of these human marvels um, and all of these human achievements in the context that there was always a price to be paid for these human achievements, that human beings can create these remarkable things. And at the same time, there was so much uh, bloodshed and injustice that was that 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 came along in tandem with it. Mm -hmm. The ghost of injustice, as Charles Dickens might say, the ghost of injustice dwells in the spirit at your elbow uh, when it comes to all of these human inventions. I think that that's kind of the 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 main moral dilemma that's being dealt with in this movie. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we've actually talked about Hayao Miyazaki. We haven't done a work by Hayao Miyazaki yet in this podcast, right? Nope, I don't think so. I'm a huge fan of Hayao Miyazaki's work. I've tried to get you interested in it you had sort of a bad first experience with with him true you were not a fan i think aesthetically speaking of spirited away and totoro mostly just because the style was just a little bit strange to you mm -hmm. um what was your impression of this film much easier much easier to watch i think the fact that there are few to no fantastical elements so it's all just grounded in the real world. It made me able to appreciate the detail and the slow pace and the beauty of the art style a lot more. I found myself while watching it thinking as I, as I saw things that were happening going, this is very human. <laughs> this is just a very human thing to portray. There are multiple shots where 
there's wind because there's a lot of wind in the movie because wind is a motif and there are multiple shots where the wind sort of knocks off our protagonist's hat and his hat kind of goes flying away and they have a shot where he goes and he picks it up and he puts it back on his head and there's not necessarily a deep symbolic meaning for that it's just a human thing if your hat gets knocked off and the wind is blowing then you got to go get your hat and there are lots of shots and moments like that that I found myself appreciating. There's a really beautiful shot of a storm coming in where it shows like the landscape and the the dark clouds come rolling in and there's a shot of raindrops starting to hit the ground and like hit this little plant, this little shrub that's sitting there. And it's so real. It's a very I I'd, I'd kind of forgotten what it looks like when it starts to rain because I haven't seen rain like that in a while and it was a real life thing. So, I really really appreciated the human elements and the art style and the meditation on nature and the meditation on the human world much more here, I think, because there weren't like monsters or ghosts or kind of deformed creatures to mm. freak me out. <laughs> um, yeah, Miyazaki is definitely a realist in this sense, and he captures an aspect of realism. You know, Pixar is very much into We have this sort of staple phrase called the Pixar look, which everyone's trying to copy. And it's all about photorealism. But Miyazaki, what he is very interested is in realistic movements. And I've seen him giving, you know, lecturing his his employees, like a picture of somebody, like one of his employees drew a picture of, of a man sitting on a chair. And Miyazaki says, I want you to go and sit on a chair exactly the way you drew it and he goes and he sits on the chair like that and everybody laughs and then he says see nobody actually sits on a chair like that and so i really like listening to him talk because he's always talking he's very much appears to like oh yeah a little kid wouldn't move like that you know or so on and so forth no you wouldn't move like that or these tiny little things like you said that take time and he's very good at that um So Hayao Miyazaki, he was really considered sort of the godfather of Japanese animation. Since a lot of people, when they think of anime, at least popularly in the West, they they think of a lot of sort of cliches, sort of campiness that Miyazaki goes out of his way to distance himself from. The way that my dad described anime before I'd ever seen an anime... I think maybe we saw a picture or something and he he was like, I think he didn't even call it anime. He was like Japanese superheroes. He said the way that you know that someone is a Japanese superhero is that when they start using their powers, their hair goes really crazy and it changes color. And that was the only thing that I thought I knew about anime for the longest time. And then have been slowly discovering that that's not true, but that is kind of the perception of what it is. Yes, yes. And so Miyazaki, he's criticized the modern anime industry saying quote it is modern anime is produced by humans who can't stand looking at other humans that's why the industry is full of otaku and otaku otaku means um fanatics of guns and fighter aircraft and he declares this uh, a fetish and refuses mm. to identify himself as such as such and so he but he was always very interested in um the rise of manga as it was starting around around in the 50s. So he was born in 1941. And I'll give a couple biographical details here because it is actually very relevant to this particular film. This is probably his most personal film. 
and that is probably why it doesn't include all of the fantastic elements. It came out in 2013, so it was actually the last film that he made before he went into retirement. I guess it was his way of piecing out. Mm -hmm. But he he couldn't stay silent, and now he's coming back out of retirement again uh, to make another <laughs> film. Uh, but he was, I guess, it was trying. He was trying to make a statement with this last one. But anyway, so his father was actually the director of Miyazaki Airplanes. Uh, um, and this, and he, and they, he manufactured rudders for fighter planes during World War II. And Miyazaki has said he never had a super good relationship with his father. His father didn't really have any kind of artistic inclinations, but he was a bit of an anarchist and he inherited that bit from him. And his mother, Yoshiko, had probably a more, a greater influence on his life in terms of his moral development and that sort of thing. And and Yoshiko has served, he has claimed, as an inspiration for many of the characters throughout his work. And Yoshiko also had tuberculosis at a time. Um, she survived it. But now that you know this about his father and mother, you can probably put the pieces together if you know, if you're familiar, the listeners are familiar with the film, why this is such a personal film to him. Actually, and what's interesting is Yoshiko's influence on his life is probably plays a large part in the fact that most of his most of his uh, films feature female protagonists, and so this this film is actually unique in his corpus, uh, and probably because of its biographical elements, because it has a male protagonist. So that's actually that's that's interesting because that feature has made him attractive uh to the west he's sort of been praised as a as a feminist um he's also been praised as an environmentalist he's also been praised as a traditionalist so he's attractive to both liberals and conservatives when he came to the west and he again resists all those labels because he says he just wants to entertain people so he wanted to be a manga artist but he couldn't draw people or he had a difficult time drawing people so he started out drawing tanks and planes and battleships. Um, and in 1958, he saw a very early anime film called Panda and the Magic Serpent. Panda and the Magic Serpent is actually a legend based off of a Song Dynasty myth about, myth about the legend of the White Snake. And it's about a inter inter-god romance between a human man and a mythical snake woman. And so that's what made him decide he wanted to get into film. And you can definitely see that, that his, his vision of mythopoeia or myth-making played a large part in the rest of his career. Um, so the first film he made was Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind. And I want to bring this up uh, specifically because Nausicaa, the, the protagonist in Nausicaa, flies around on this little glider machine that doesn't really have a an engine so it's basically the the aviator equivalent of a sailboat and this is an image which is very attractive to Miyazaki the idea of being able to fly but in a way that's organic and very closely wedded to nature so a lot of his flying machines are very fantastical because they're made to mimic nature more closely than a plane would I mean, originally, originally, even planes were modeled after 
uh, birds. And if you look at early designs of airplanes uh, uh, before the Wright brothers design came out, uh, a lot of them are made look like they have these mechanisms to create flapping wings or something either modeled after birds or insects. And um, actually, I mean, even in the final design of the airplane, the wing mimics the shape of a bird. And it actually has to, um, because if you don't have that specific shape with the curvature at the top and the, and the straight line at the bottom, your plane isn't going to get off the ground. But Miyazaki takes that biomimicry idea and takes it a step further because he really wants a sort of naturalistic kind of airplane. Um, so even when you have, so he does bring, you bring a lot of like early 19th century dreams and imagery of, of the airplane is brought into Hayao Miyazaki's world. And he's definitely influenced by that form of romanticism. So you see planes that are just flap their wings like birds, or um, if there's any kind of propellers, they sort of sound like insect wings, like <laughs> you don't hear the... Um, <laughs> I don't know how that's going to show up on the on my recording here. <laughs> Did I get that on the tape? <laughs> but anyway, actually in this film, in The Wind Rises, you will notice that it's very subtle. It, if, you, if you're not listening closely, you won't hear it, but a lot of the plane noises are actually made by the human mouth. Hmm. And it's not entirely because uh, they, they mix in engine noises with it too. But you can definitely hear the the human mouth is making some of those sound effects. And that's part of his vision of wanting to connect planes as something deeply uh, connected to hum as a as a product of human imagination and, and human creation. And so every single one of Miyazaki's films features a scene of flying. Um, and that's kind of his signature thing. So you can definitely see this is something that he's going to be, he's deeply passionate about. And this is sort of, in some sense, his magnum opus or his ode to airplanes. And we also see this theme going back and forth between engineering and artistry, mm -hmm. right? As a sort of strange kinship between these two people, these two figures, the engineer and the artist. I did not know any of this before. And I especially didn't know about the, the flying motif. I do now that I'm remembering. I remember flying in Spirited Away. There's a very important flying scene. And I don't actually remember Totoro that well because it scarred me. So I guess I don't remember any <laughs> flying in that. But I believe you that there was flying in it. So that's definitely already is helping to paint a more complete picture of this film for me, just having seen it. Yeah, yeah. This is definitely... A movie about flying it, it it celebrates flying like ratatouille celebrates food yes and coco celebrates music and and that sort of thing mm -hmm. so the story is based off of a the chief engineer of japanese fighter jets during world war ii jiro horikoshi um, and that's pretty much where the historical facts end they got his name right and that's about it um, the rest of it is almost completely made up. Although we know, I mean, uh, like his his wife, Jiro's wife in the movie, Nahoko, uh, uh, is a totally fictional wife. That wasn't her actual name. She didn't have tubular callosis. The only parts that are historically accurate are mostly the events that are public, that are publicly known. Um, like there was an earthquake in the movie that's historical. 
there are some characters that are historical figures. And as we'll see later, there are also some characters that come out of fictional works like uh, novels. And so there is quite a lot of blurring between fantasy and reality here. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, the story starts out with Jiro Horikoshi dreaming of designing airplanes. His his idol is this Italian plane designer, uh, Caproni, Giovanni Caproni, um, who is, again, a historical character. Um, And his relation to him is kind of like Remy and Gusto. Caproni is kind of his his uh, artistic hero, and he often has these dreams where he meets Caproni in a dream, and Caproni tells him about his uh, his vision for airplanes, about how they share the same br- the how they share the same dream. They both have this same dream of of creating airplanes, and he wants to be a pilot, but he can't because he's nearsighted. But when he meets Caproni in a dream, he tells him, Caproni tells him, I never flew any planes. It's better to be a designer. And so after he's been told this by his idol in the dream, he decides that he's going to be uh, a a plane designer. And so he's on a train in 1923 en route to Tokyo Imperial University to study aeronautical engineering when there is an earthquake, which is the Kanto earthquake, which was a historical earthquake. Uh, the train is knocked off the rails, and at this point, he meets a young girl named Nahoko and her maid. Her maid has broken her leg, and Nahoko is a young girl. She's probably like a young teenager, um, so she's a few years younger than him at this point. And during the earthquake, Jiro helps uh, her maid, uh, gives him some, uh, aids her, her leg, and and helps Nahoko reunite back with her family. Then he leaves without really giving his name to her. And so that's the first interaction between the two of them. And then later he gets a job as an aeronautical engineer. And we don't really hear of Nahoko again for a long time. Except after his act of kindness of meeting him and her and her maid uh, during the earthquake. And so... He goes and gets a job at Mitsubishi, and we have this interesting scene where he is inspired by a mackerel fishbone, and he's looking at the shape of the mackerel fishbone and saying how elegant it is and how close it is to the shape of the wing, and he asks a question, I wonder if the Americans eat mackerel. They have to, because that's... How else would they come up with such an elegant plane design? And we constantly see this theme of him seeing beauty in everywhere he goes. He sees beauty in oxen, even though everyone thinks it's a symbol of uh, Japan's backwardness that they're still using oxen. Um, he's fascinated with the heaters that he finds in a hotel room. Um, he's And he's fascinated with the shape of the mackerel fishbone. And he just wants to create the most elegant airplane. I think it's interesting to me, though, that it's not just that he sees beauty in everything. He also is super troubled by what he perceives as Japan's backwardness. He's constantly saying, we're 10 years behind everybody else. How are we supposed to catch up? Um, So it's not just he's kind of okay, like content with where they are and thinks it's all beautiful. 
he himself is discontent in trying to figure out how do we match everybody else? How do we move forward enough in our technology and in the way that we operate? He's also concerned with how poor Japan is. He says multiple times, why is our country so poor? Why can't we solve that problem? Yeah, yeah. And actually, that is what sort of sets up the uncomfortable moral dilemma of wanting to move forward and advance. Um, because in a large part, World War II was a big nationalist competition where everyone was trying to develop as much technology as they could, as fast as they could to prove that they were the best country. And so a lot of the technologies that we enjoy now, including the computer, were developed as instruments of war. And so he has to reconcile this because he has to square the fact that he wants to advance. He loves planes. He loves artistry. He, he, he sees himself as an artist, even though he's an engineer. The only way that he can find an avenue to advance this, to bring Japan forward, to lift it out of poverty, his only option at this point is to design planes for war, which goes against his principles of being against war. Miyazaki uh, is, against, is against war, and actually this film was criticized by the Japanese right um, for being too anti-Japanese, which is <laughs> which is so funny. And also, incidentally, it was criticized by the Japan Society for Tobacco Control. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of smoking in this movie. There's one thought I have about that. The idea that someone would say this movie is too anti-war is really interesting to me because... I actually thought it was going to be more anti-war than it was in the sense that the movie itself doesn't really take a moral stance on whether or not Japan's participation in this war was right or wrong, right? It doesn't, it's not really pro-Japan or anti-Japan in World War II specifically um, because it's all pre-war except for the very last scene, which is after the war has already ended. It's interesting to me because in the beginning, Caproni tells tells Jiro in his dream, wars, like, plane, planes are not for war, they're not to make money, planes are, are beautiful things, you want to make beautiful things. He, he kind of has a little bit of an anti-war message. But Jiro doesn't seem like he really super takes that to heart in the context of designing airplanes, because he immediately <laughs> goes on and ends up designing a plane that is clearly intended to be used for war, which is what Caproni told him not to do. Right. And so he he has this pacifist tendency. We see him multiple times stopping fighting. Standing or, up to bullies. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so it's clear that he kind of personally is against war and that he doesn't care about war and that he's really here to design a beautiful airplane. But also Caproni told him, don't design planes for war. And I actually, when he started going and working for this company that was going to build a warplane... My initial response was, oh, no, <laughs> don't build don't build the warplane because that's what Caproni told you not to do. And I expected more of the film to be like a moral meditation on whether or not he's doing the right thing by building a plane that's going to be used for war. And then actually, he just did not seem very troubled by that. There aren't really very many scenes of him being concerned. He seems like he's just building a plane and he actually doesn't really care about the fact that the plane is clearly a fighter plane. It's clearly intended to be used in war. 
I, I, yeah, I don't know. There might be a little bit of pride involved in that um, on Miyazaki's part um, to kind of say, look, you know, my hands are clean. I've always just wanted one thing. Um, and that's kind of what he's insisting on. So there is a little bit of, I guess, silence in the terms of investigating that that particular conversation further. Mm-hmm. But it's it's still a constant theme that's being addressed. And I think that maybe it's just a, 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 de- a desire to be subtle that might be driving this, that might be like he wants us to provoke us to, to think about that, that dilemma, mm-hmm. which I guess he does. I mean, for example, he... He constantly finds the design of anything that is designed specifically for war purposes, uh, like bombers and guns, as basically just inconvenient, which is interesting. He doesn't, it's not that he has necessarily a moral objection to bombers and guns, but that the design of bombers and putting guns on the plane just get in the way of making the most elegant design. Like, you don't want to have a bomber because you can't make it small uh, and quick. Um, You don't want guns because it makes the plane too heavy. And so he actually prefers to design fighter jets as opposed to bombers simply because fighter jets are more elegant. And then that goes back to the, the image of the mackerel bone. You know, he wants that that elegant design. Mm-hmm. And so this goes back to this interesting, this interesting dream sequence. We keep on returning to going back throughout his life. As he gets older, he keeps on having dreams of Caproni. And a lot of the times, interestingly, another recurring motif is that he sees the planes in his dream. And then the, these planes are usually either encroached upon by war pilots. and They shoot down his plane or his plane designs fail and crash. Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of commentary, but on this idea of war getting in the way, uh, but it's mostly like a visual commentary, right? Um, and it is, again, like you said, it's not really a moral difficulty. It's more like an inconvenience, like just this weird sort of side quest that sort of happens on the side. Mm-hmm. So there might be a moral question of his blindsidedness, mm-hmm. of his ignoring the consequences. But, I mean, if you think about it from his perspective, his passion is, I want to create planes, I want to be able to fly. And in that context, at that moment, at that period in history, in Japan, there was no other job he could have taken. Um, this is the only opportunity he has to to build planes. And so that goes back to this the fact that this beautiful dream that we might have always has to happen in the context of competition and war, which is exactly the same thing that was happening with uh, the space race, right, in the 60s. We have this romantic view of reaching for the stars, but there's no way we would have had the we would have mustered up the motivation to go to the moon if we weren't also trying to prove that we were better than Russia. One thing I would add there, though, you you mentioned the question of his blindsidedness because I think that's a huge question that's going on here, even if it's mostly unstated. And I was, I actually was at the end of the film, and I I am a little bit jumping to the end, but I have to do it to make this point. At the very end, Jiro, he expresses this 
concern. He expresses this regret that his planes were used for war because it's after World War II. It's after they've lost. It's after they've lost. And he's in his dream imagining all his planes that are out there in war, like killing people. And he's sad about that. He's regretting that. And I was kind of watching this scene and sure, I felt sympathy for him because I care about this character and I followed him the whole time and he's a good guy. But also I was kind of like, you didn't see that coming. It was very clear that that's what these planes were going Mm -hmm. to be used for. You were designing them literally for the military and you were told by our weird prophet man who we're going to talk about soon. You were, you were told basically that Germany was going back to war. Like Japan was going to end up being on that side. You knew that war was coming and you made this plane anyway. So it feels like if there was ever if there was a moment to express concern or regret about what your beautiful plane design was going to be used for, it was not after it had already happened because you had every single piece of information. Every tool was available to you for you to put the pieces together and know. And so at the end of the film to be like, well, I just designed the plane. Like, I'm not really morally complicit in this. I feel bad about what happened. To me is a little bit silly because you did kind of know the whole time and it feels a little bit like pilot washing his hands and saying I'm not you can do what you want with it because obviously pilot is morally complicit in this action and he can't just wash his hands and say I just designed the plane I I agree with you and there's all you also uh conducted some very elegant world wordplay there with uh Pontius Pilate and pilots so (laughs) thank you thank you (laughs) I try nice little connection there um (laughs) on that note about about sort of ignoring things we also have these constant recurring sequences of dreams, uh, which sort of are always blurring the lines between fantasy and reality. Um, and that kind of works very well for this kind of medium that he's working in because everything sort of looks like a fantasy landscape. And so later, this is the second interaction that he has with Caproni, one when he's a little boy and then a little bit later when he's a grown man. And he's been working on these fighter plates, uh, fighter planes for a long time. He has another dream with Caproni. And this is where he asks the question, which we think is very central to this film, uh, which is, which world would you rather be in? A world with pyramids or a world without them? And Caproni says, I choose a world with pyramids. And another thing that he talks about in this scene is the relationship between engineers and artists as being one in the same thing. And we can also speculate that this probably has something to do with Miyazaki working out his relationships with his father, trying to reconcile his passion for airplanes or his background with airplanes with the fact that his father didn't really have any kind of um, artistic tendencies or support for what he did. But was an engineer. But was an engineer. Um, And then he says... Uh, Caproni says, artists are only creative for 10 years. Engineers are no different. Live your 10 years well, Japanese boy. So there's this uh, pressure, like this, this, this theme of time, which emerges now. If we're on a, we, we, we have a limited amount of time to live our life to the fullest. Um, so you've got to, you know, seize the day, carpe diem. Yeah. The question about the pyramids It is a nice way, I think, of framing the moral dilemma and of trying to justify Jiro's choice in that moral dilemma. I do have kind of a problem 
with framing it in that way. Like, I think it's a little bit sophistic. And the reason is, if you ask me now, would you rather live in a world with pyramids or a world without them? The assumption being, obviously, pyramids are built by slaves. And I say, of course, I would rather live in a world with pyramids, given the fact that the pyramids were made, right? Someone made the pyramids, and the fact that there is injustice bound up in their creation is true of lots of works of artistry in the world, and it's possible for the beauty to be justified and for the beauty to be good and the world to be better for the beauty and also for the means in which it was made to be unjust and problematic, right? So we all know that. However, if you ask the person, you know, the pharaoh who is directing the building of the pyramids, the if you tell him the only way that you can build a pyramid is with slaves, I think the correct moral answer for the person who's about to build the pyramids is the world is better without pyramids if it's going to require slavery. It's it's utilitarian in some sense to say the pyramids are a worthy and beautiful and artistic end. And so whatever means it takes to get there is justified. And so, yeah, of course we'd rather have the pyramids. Of course the world is better for the pyramids. I don't think the pyramids justify slavery. And in the same way, I think that if you're asking Jiro that question and he's having to wrestle with what he's doing I don't think that that question super applies to his situation because it's like okay what if you creating something beautiful what if you creating a work of art requires something terrible you are creating a work of art knowing that it's going to be used for something terrible you actually do have the choice as to whether or not you're going to participate in that yeah, well, so it's easy for you to say, I would rather live in a world with pyramids when you're saying it retrospectively, but they're actually talking about the future. So mm-hmm. in some sense, it's a conversation with Pharaoh himself, Jiro being Pharaoh yes. in this in this instance and saying, you know, are you going to move forward with that? Yeah. And again, yeah, I don't, I think that the way Miyazaki is trying to circumvent the utilitarian argument is basically by eclipsing it with his vision. That's why he's minimizing the reality of what's happening. So I agree with the the problem that you set up, but I think from the filmmaker's own perspective, if he was really trying to make a utilitarian argument, then he would have done more to actually show all the imagery of war and everything that happens in it and then sort of like rationalize it and say like well it was worth it and i think the fact that he does so much focused on the beauty of planes is his way of sort of getting around the utilitarian problem which may not be like a again it might be a problematic argument but that's i think i don't think he's making a utilitarian argument i don't think he's trying to it's difficult for him to avoid the utilitarian argument since he's trying to say the creation of the plane is a good thing that is then used for evil, which I'm perfectly fine with. I think that's a great argument if you don't know what the plane's going to be used for. And the thing that I'm struggling with is the fact that he really does know what this plane is going to be used for. And so then to stand at the end and say, oh no, I feel bad. It's like, okay, well, you had lots of opportunities to feel bad before we got to this point. Well, going in... Knowing, you know, knowing that there's going to be pain and suffering involved is a th- is a theme that develops later in Jiro's personal story. So what happens right after this second dream 
and by this point, we're about halfway through the movie. We meet Nahoko again, and ten years have passed since they first met. So Nahoko is grown up. Um, she's a young woman now, and and when we first see her, she is painting. So Nahoko is a painter, and I think that there's definitely a poetic association that's really supposed that the viewer is encouraged to make here by juxtaposing these two scenes next to each other. Um, obviously, uh, Jiro is the engineer and Noko is the painter. And so there's an implication that they kind of have a joint venture going on here. And so they meet um, at this resort. Jiro has retreated to this resort because he's um, had a lot of frustration with his with his uh, plane, so he's going to this resort to clear his mind, where where he meets Nahoko, and they they instantly fall in love. They sort of have this sort of playful courtship scene together, where he's making paper planes and throwing it across the balcony to her. So it's I mean it's very Romeo and Juliet actually. Now that I think about it, yeah, uh, because he's he's down at the bottom and and she's up at the top. So um, and they're throwing planes to each other, which is a connection that should perhaps already make us concerned. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we know that there's uh, there's a there's a certain fate bound up with this with this story. Yeah, and and at the same time, he also meets this strange figure, who is referred to as Mister Kastrop, who is a German visiting Japan at the time, and he's somewhat critical of the Nazi regime, but he's also a very mysterious figure. What do we think about this guy? I was giving you a running commentary while I was watching the movie. I was sending texts periodically while I was watching it, and when he first showed up, I didn't catch his name, and so I just kept referring to him as this weird prophet man. <laughs> I was like, who is this weird prophet? Um, but he is kind of a, he is a, a prophet figure, and it reminds me a little bit of one of the early scenes in Moby Dick is a character who appears to Ishmael and is kind of prophesying about Ahab and saying, you know, it's it, it, there are going to be all these sort of mythologically mystical important things that are going to happen if you were the Pequod and if you go out on this whaling journey. So he's filling an archetype, I think, of the prophet character who maybe knows more than he's letting on, who is sort of cluing in Jiro on what's going on in the world and the bigger context of what he's operating in, um, which again actually goes back to, I keep coming back to this, but for me, the moral question of this movie, which is that this character just makes that a little bit worse <laughs> because he has this conversation with Jiro where he's hinting at the fact that Germany is going to go back to war. And so that means that there's going to be a second world war and that Japan's going to be involved in that, which obviously implicates Jiro because he's making planes for the military. So, and he, his prophecies, you know, prophecies, quote unquote, because it's, it's secular. <laughs> he's not an actual prophet, but his uh, prophesying about what's going to happen ends up being actually true. And so in some sense, it is a way of warning Jiro what's going to happen and he's he doesn't take that warning like he continues doing what he's doing with more or less no no concern for what he has been told by this prophet character here's the really interesting thing about this prophet character um so his name castrop this is actually an illusion 
to a fictional character written by uh, Thomas Mann, the German novelist, called The Magic Mountain. And so in The Magic Mountain, it's about this, this German man who goes into the mountains of Switzerland to visit his cousin who has tubular callosis. And this man's name is Hans Kastrop. And so the weird thing about this is that the the man in this uh, in the film is referred to as Mr. Kastrop. Ka oh, I'm saying Kastrop. It's actually Kastorp. He's referred to as Mr. Kastorp. So there is an implication that he is basically the incarnation of this fictional character from the book, which is a little bit weird because he actually references the book. The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. So it's weird, like, what's going mm -hmm. on here? How would he know about this? But he refers to the resort as the Magic Mountain, the mountain, the, the resort where they're meeting. Jiro meets Nahoko and where he meets Castorp. This resort is called the Magic Mountain. And this Magic Mountain as re is referred to the place where we forget about everything, including all of these historical events, all the things that Japan has done. He has this speech where he says, all the things that Japan has done, we forget everything that Germany has done. We forget everything that's happening in the world. We forget. We can forget all of that here on this magic mountain. And so that's kind of the, I guess that is kind of works its way into the overarching philosophy that's going on here. So this idea of forgetting on the magic mountain, um, about retreating up to a mountain we, la we later discover, uh, after he proposes to his wife, that, that uh, Nahoko has tuberculosis. And he says that even though in the fact that he knows this, he wants to marry her anyway. Um, and this also, the moral dilemma comes up again. And uh, uh, Jiro's sister calls this act kind of selfish. So there is a certain selfishness in marrying his wife and also flying airplanes of, you know, again, he has full knowledge. So we have this recapitulation of this theme. He has full knowledge um, of the fact that uh, this marriage is sort of doomed, um, but he chose, chooses to marry her anyway. He also, the other thing I'll add here, a, a concern that I had is that he's he's gone all the time. Like he's out working building his plane and then he comes back really late at night and she like kind of waits up for him and they have like a few minutes basically <laughs> where he's they're able to interact and often he's still working <laughs> even when he's back there and his sister comes and kind of scolds him for being like okay so she's there by herself all day um she's just in that room you come back really late like that's a problem and you're treating her poorly and he's kind of like, well, each day is precious to us. And he's basically like, I know that she's dying. And so it's important that we stay together. But also, he's still working all the time on this plane. And so he's not, in terms of like choosing between them, much more of his life is going to this plane than it is going to actually caring for his wife, who he knows is dying. Um, and that also seems a little bit problematic to me. I, I really... I'm sympathetic towards Jiro as a character. I think he's really well painted. I think he feels like a real person, but that doesn't feel like a great choice to me. There's also this interesting 
idea of tube tuber you know that disease yep. <laughs> um so it happens a lot <laughs> so it happens a lot you have some thoughts about this about yes. the theme of tuberculosis yes okay so tuberculosis has a history ah that's how you say it tuberculosis that's okay all right, so the tuberculosis. Every time, every time that you say tuberculosis <laughs> throughout this whole podcast, we'll just like we'll edit it out, and I'll say it instead. So you'll just be talking, and then we'll we'll paste in me saying tuberculosis like a robot, and then we'll keep going. All right, so tell me about the tuberculosis. Yes. Um, disease. Yep. Okay, so there's a history of tuberculosis being romanticized. Uh, you probably are aware that the Bronte sisters, uh, Anne and Emily, both died of tuberculosis. I don't think Charlotte also died of tuberculosis, but I might be wrong about that. She might have as well. Um, but it's very famous that Emily Bronte especially died of tuberculosis. Uh, Charlotte Bronte, after both of her sisters died of tuberculosis, <laughs> one of her famous quotes is she wrote, consumption, which is what they call tuberculosis, consumption, I am aware is a flattering malady. So at the time, there was this image of beauty, which was being very pale, was beautiful, having very red lips, um, being super, super thin, so almost bony, um, was supposed to be really beautiful. And those were all symptoms of having tuberculosis. So particularly for women, tuberculosis was like a romantic disease, and there were images or painted of women who had tuberculosis where, you know, they're sort of looking really beautiful and regal and there might be a bird there, which is signifying their soul about to take flight and all that. So there's this weird like romanticization of that illness at the time, which is something that has sort of carried over a little bit into the art that we make now, where it's any kind of disease where you're just sort of wasting away and getting kind of softer and softer and more tired, more tired until you just kind of pass away, fade away. It's sad, but there's also something kind of romantic about it um, in a way that is not necessarily as gross as some other illnesses that you might portray. And so I think that this movie is sort of playing into that trope a little bit. The fact that Nahoko has tuberculosis is very romanticized here and that she's sort of gentle and sweet and patient, even as her, her body is sort of fading away. And she's literally portrayed as fading away um, we don't even see her die. She leaves one day knowing that she's going to die, not wanting to be seen, I guess, <laughs> when she dies. She kind of leaves some notes for everybody, and then she passes away. But we don't actually see her. The thing that signifies that she has died is while Jiro is, his plane is being tested, there's a, a gust of wind. And we sort of realize the gust of wind means that she's passed away. So even that is very kind of flighty and... Uh, ethereal and fairy-like, which is kind of how I would describe her character. And that's all associated with her illness, which is tuberculosis, which is like a wasting disease or a consumption. Um, There's also the symbolism of her being the painter, and that's connected to Caproni's line of saying that artists only have 10 years, so right. live your 10 years well. So she sort of represents that, too. Right, yes. Yeah. So... There's this theme working through the whole film, which is beauty is temporary, beauty fades away, but despite the fact that beauty fades away, beauty is worth it anyway. And then similarly with the plane, 
the plane is going to be used for horrible things. The plane is going to be used for destruction, but the plane is beautiful. And maybe that beauty is self-justifying, right? The beauty justifies itself. The beauty is worth something. It is valuable despite the end that it's being used for. The beauty is worthwhile and valuable, even if it's not here for a long time. Jiro knows that he's not, that the marriage is not going to last for very long because he knows that she's going to die, but he's willing to marry her anyway because he loves her, even if he's also going to leave her alone in a room for <laughs> days on end, which is in itself problematic. But I think we, we get the point, the theme, which is beauty is ephemeral, but it is worth it anyway, which I think is true. I think that's a good point. If I were going to have a criticism, I think there's maybe a little bit left on the table in terms of beauty as something that is lasting. So beauty not being something that just appears for a time and then goes away and then is gone, but beauty as something that really is eternal, that really does last forever. Even if, you know, this beautiful woman who is good and kind and sweet and patient, the fact that she dies... In this movie, it sort of looks like she just dies and then she's just kind of gone. And that beauty that she had for that short time on Earth is tragic and romantic and lovely, but also she's gone now. When I struggle with that a little bit because beauty, I think, is maybe more eternal than that. I'm not sure how to think about the fact that she just kind of disappears into nothingness at the end and says, you must live, you're alive now, I'm gone, and then she's gone. And so beauty is just kind of... It's just kind of gone. And the thing that makes it worthwhile is when it was existing on Earth. Well, I think that in order to understand this, it's important to think about it in the context of the romantic aesthetic movement, too. Including this idea of two... You know what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about. (laughs) (laughs) The disease. (laughs) Um, You can say TB. um, Because... Let's just call it TB. Um, So so this... uh, the idea of the romanticized disease is something that is very much coming out of 18th and 19th century Europe, which is also when the Romantic movement was getting started. And the Romantic movement was characterized by emphasizing the fleetingness of love and also, additionally, a move towards secularism. Um, like all of these great romantic poets like Coleridge, Wordsworth, and Byron, their religion, their their religious language was also very much tied up with animism um, and the worship of nature. And this actually makes sense from if we think about Hayao Miyazaki's influence because he was definitely influenced to a large degree by European Romanticism. We know this because of his visionary his visionary designs of planes, right? It's kind of this archaic, um, old-timey, early designs of planes where planes look like birds and that sort of thing. And so that whole Romantic movement with the, the old-style plane designs and everything that's sort of associated with that um, romanticization of illness, all of that sort of thing, is definitely coming from the headwaters of European romanticism, which is finding its way into here. Mm-hmm. And I think that that you can, I think that there's definitely, from his perspective, there's definitely an aspect of his own culture which is compatible with that because Jap- Japan is very um, animist. Mm-hmm. And so 
And he, he has a very animist sort of, uh, that's, I guess, his mostly his religious background, his beliefs is in Shintoism and, and animism. So I think that he sees a sort of kinship there between his animism and European romanticism. Um, and so, okay, so the idea of romanticism, this is something that I find a very fascinating topic because... Romanticism was really actually what started C.S. Lewis's spiritual journey towards Christianity. Um, he was he was first before he became a Christian a romantic, and he definitely would have uh, been very much drawn into this kind of imagery. And later again, later he identified this as zinshut, right, longing. Um, and he identified romanticism as merely the starting point of that, um, the starting point of a journey which hmm. he found ultimately was dissatisfying. And the reason why it was dissatisfying is because if you constantly pursued romanticism, um, what you ended up doing was pursuing feelings. Mm -hmm. And if you pursue feelings... Um, eventually, the context in which you experience those feelings with, you know, the romantic, the beauty and the mountains and nature and all of that, eventually, those images no longer appeal to you anymore, and you become more and more fixated on the feeling itself. And so once you get fixated on that, you just become more and more invested in simply bodily sensation. And so romanticism becomes less and less about the broader context of the romantic world, which initially attracted you, and becomes more and more just uh, pure sexual desire mm -hmm. um, and lust. And so he liked the romantics, but he had to part ways with them at a certain point. Um, and this is kind of where he also parts ways with Freud, right? Because both Freud and Lewis were very interested in the idea of eros. Eros being the driving force which sort of moves human towards some sort of goal, right? And eros was not purely sexuality, right? Because in the original idea of eros, it was, you know, the sexual dimension was also embedded in this broader context of, you know, desire, Um and desire for the metaphysical and for the transcendent. And where Freud would have sort of capped it off and said, it's all about, you know, the sex drive and the death drive. Um, C.S. Lewis wanted to break that barrier. And so he was interested in going, as using romanticists and the idea of eros, which romanticism sort of engenders in you and going beyond that. So... I think that understanding romanticism in this context, I think, really helps us understand this film because this film is very much a romanticist film. Um, and as you, uh, as you noted here in our notes, um, one of the things that you noticed is that there isn't really any kind of uh, religious undertone here. There's no influence to an afterlife or that sort of thing. So um, how are we as Mars Hillers to think about that this film? Because usually in a lot of the pieces that we've worked 
with before, there's usually some kind of allusion uh, to, to the spiritual world. But this film seems to be almost entirely humanistic. Mm-hmm. My, so I was thinking about that too. Normally, normally when we see a movie or listen to a song or whatever for this, for this podcast, there's immediately something that we can latch onto that's like, yes, this is a Christian thought. This is a Christian idea. And it's a little bit harder here. One thought that I had, maybe you'll disagree with me and we could fight, but so the plane and Nahoko are really the two things that Jiro loves, right? Those are the two things that he goes into knowing that they might be ultimately purposed for something terrible, which is that his wife is going to die, the plane is going to be used for war, and he's willing to embark on those things anyway. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of a parallel between the plane that he's working on and then his wife. Um... And it's also interesting to me that, so at the end of the film, Jiro comes back, um, sees Nahoko, says, I finished the plane. It's going to fly today. So we're going to see whether it flies today. It's going to be its first test flight. And she knows that. And then he leaves to go out for this test flight. And she tells the woman they're living with, oh, I'm going to go on a walk. I'm feeling better. But we find out later she doesn't, she's not actually feeling better. She knows that she's going to die that day, which is why she leaves. And it's interesting to me that she hears that the plane is going to fly and is in immediately like, oh, well, I'm going to die. <laughs> um, and she leaves. And so that sort of forges, I think, maybe this spiritual connection between her and the plane. So what's interesting to me about that is if you're building a plane, you have the plane with you on the ground. Um, you're working on this plane. There's beauty in the parts. There's beauty in the process of creating something beautiful. But the plane hasn't fulfilled its purpose, which is to fly, right? A plane isn't really a plane until it has flown, until it is in the air. And so Jiro loves this plane, which is not full yet. It's not complete. It hasn't fulfilled its purpose. It hasn't flown. And it is interesting to me that the plane flies at the same time that Nohoko dies. Because the plane, when it flies, two things happen. Jiro loses the plane because now the plane is out of his hands. He's done working on it. The military gets it they're going to use it and they're ultimately going to use it for terrible purposes, right? So he lets go of this plane, but the plane does fulfill its purpose. And if the plane never flew, then it wouldn't really be a plane. So he has to let it go in order for the plane to really be itself, for the plane to be fulfilled, for the plane to, to be a plane. And simultaneously, he loses her. He loses his wife when she dies. And I want to be clear, the movie itself does not suggest that Nahoko goes to heaven or is somehow made complete or made whole. But the fact that the plane fulfills its purpose and Jiro has to let it go and that he also has to let Nahoko go at the same time makes me wonder if there's sort of an underlying current here, a subconscious thought, which is that that also happens for her, that she is broken in life in the same way that the plane the plane's parts are broken. The plane's parts are not 100% put together and that the plane is lost to the sky and that she also is quote unquote lost to the sky when she dies. But that maybe, maybe by parallel, she also is put back together. She also is made whole because she, in, tuberculosis is, in, is incurable. She can't be cured while she is on earth. 
maybe she's cured through death. Maybe death makes her whole again. That is really the germ of of embedded in romanticism, which C.S. Lewis originally was attracted to, and he wanted to sort of pick that out and say, you know, what is that feeling that I get when I watch a romantic, when, if I were to watch a romantic film like this or engage in a romantic piece of poetry, is that there's a little bit of that thing in there. Um, it makes you want something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, it's not, again, it it's not in the piece itself. It's not like it, it really knows itself. It knows what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. But the work itself puts that, that desire in you. And, um, and so it's a, it's maybe, maybe unlike more than any of the other pieces we have worked, we, we have talked about, it's not a Christian story, but you could say it's a pre-Christian story. Mm-hmm. It's a story that could go one or two ways. You could take that in one direction and move towards secularism, secularism and nihilism and the belief that, you know, there this life is all there is. You could reduce it down to materialism. So the only thing that you can do is to enjoy this short bit of life while it lasts, right? That's very much where secular romanticism can go. Mm-hmm. Or you can take it in the other direction. And you can see that ambivalence happening in the whole moral dilemma that is constantly brought up but's never resolved. And that what's that's the the way it's articulated in the final dream scene. So after she dies, he finds himself in this field and it's a field of planes of um it's a graveyard of planes after the war and he meets Caproni and says, you know, we failed, we lost the war, everything, you know, it all, all meant it was all for nothing. Um Caproni calls it the kingdom of dreams and then Jiro says or the land of the dead. So those are the two visions that exist simultaneously. It's either the kingdom of dreams or the land of the dead. And so, you know, which direction is this going to go in? And you can see that's why it's such an interesting parallel, I think, between Lewis and Freud is they both were looking at the kingdom of dreams and the land of the dead Mm -hmm. and trying to decide, you know, which, which way are we going to go? Um, which world are we going to choose to live in? And, you know, what happens if we follow one trail instead of the other? And so I'm going to read here a quote from C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory, which I think we, we might have read this before, um, but I think that it um, it kind of explains things well. So he says, In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret which pierces with, with such sweetness that when, in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes in- imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. 
We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our com commonest expedient is to call it beauty and be behave as if that settled the matter. Wordsworth expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out itself to be a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. The line, the the part of the quote that talks about that that, that longing is the part of us that we can't, we cannot hide, uh, reminded me, I think there's a connection there to our, to our theme music. Um, in the outro, the lines that we always play are, uh, I know you can see something inside the one part of me that I cannot hide. And maybe it's true that nothing is new. And so that's like the thing that is not new that we have to say over and over again is an expression of that longing. But the fact that it is not new is unconcerning to us because it, it is an expression of mystery, which is the mystery of God. And that is the thing we can't hide. That's the thing we can't avoid saying over and over and over again in our art. Okay, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say that one of the things that you were criticizing about the trope of this infamous uh, disease that must not be TB. named. Um, TB. The, the, the romanticization of TB, which you were criticizing, is I think a way of looking at it after the wool has been pulled from your eyes, so to speak. Um, in other words, this is what he's talking about when he says uh, the these images, when they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's what happens, you know, once we, there's there's, before we have been enlightened and been disenchanted with this romanticization of disease there was that idea that 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 story which has enchanted plenty of readers for a long time um to the point where it has become a common trope there was a certain emotion that was um aggravated in our souls when we heard that story and I think the more we try to pursue it, the more it becomes this trope, which we later identify as problematic because the idea itself of the sickliness, you know, the sickly woman now becomes the means by which we can access that emotion. And that's when it's revealed to be a dumb idol. Mm -hmm. I guess we have to we have to hold Miyazaki's selfishness at arm's distance Um because there is an inherent selfishness 
that I think that comes with romanticism. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that we were able to identify that. I think that it, that it is really where he's coming from mm -hmm. is from a, is a very romantic view of the world. Yeah. And that does come with a bit of selfishness and a, and a bit of individualism. And he hasn't had a particularly happy married life. So, you know, that should tell you something yeah. there, too. But anyway, we, we appreciate it for what it is. So in answer to so let's so 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 the question again as we asked at the beginning, would you live in a world with pyramids or without them? How would you answer this now? I think I would live in a world made whole where there are pyramids, but there are no slaves. Good. I would live in a world where I could pronounce Tabor Colossus properly. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We're all, all right. we all have our flaws. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Oh, we are not a Mars Hill podcast anymore. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Raymond Dokopil and Sophie Belanco. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us, review us, and write to us at unreliablepodcasters at gmail.com or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash unreliablenarratorspodcast. Shout out to our Paradiso level patron, Amy Klomperens. Our theme song is New Moon by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the 1957 Broadway musical West Side Story. Until then, friends, the wind rises and you must try to live. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new But I can see so much more in you There are no new words under the sun For all that I'm